I thought a lot about what I wanted to talk about for the first talk of what for many of you is a month of practice and for many of you is two months of practice. And I really wanted to talk about uh, how what we do here, how we live here, how we, uh, what lifestyle we have here, these specific practices that we do here, how they, uh, how they work to uh, arrive at the goal of the end of suffering. Not the end of pain, because pain in a life is the Buddha taught, and we all know, inevitable, but how not to have extra tension in the mind about the pain. Everything is change. How to realize that, how to be comfortable with the inevitable challenges of change. I thought of several ways to start, and then I decided I'd think of one way, and I'd say, no, it's not too good, I'll start another way. No, not too good, I'll start another way. <laughs> so maybe since you just laughed, I'll start with the funniest way, which, <laughs> which came to my mind. I, I was remembering that uh, my, probably my favorite Gahan Wilson cartoon uh, is a cartoon of uh, monks sitting, they're, they're Zen monks, you can see from their outfit, and they're sitting along the edge of a zendo. They're facing out <clears throat> into the zendo. Usually they'd be facing facing the wall, but it's a line of meditating seated monks, and they all are sitting cross-legged with gaze down and looking like you'd expect them to look, except for one of them who uh, is leaning forward a little bit, and you can see that he has a cell phone cupped in his hand and he's making a telephone call clearly in the middle of the zendo. And he's saying what the caption is, is, I don't think this is doing me any good at all. <laughs> and what makes that particular cartoon funny, I think, is two things. First of all, just for the general public, I'm assuming you're all now seasoned meditators, you know that this does you good, and you know the trajectory of coming here and having the mind change and go through its changes and become in days after days after days more tolerant, more patient, more expansive. But for many people, the idea of sitting quietly is weird. Why would it do you some good? And uh, the other thing I think that makes the... Uh, uh, the cartoon so dear is the imperative in it, you know, that he could wait until the end of the sitting and go make a phone call somewhere privately. But you have to, under you get the feeling that he's really very uncomfortable, that he needs to make the call phone call from the middle of there. I don't think this is doing me any good. So I want to talk a little bit, reminding us all about in what way this does us good. And uh, one way to think about it is uh, I think it, uh, in making the mind more tolerant, more patient, more forgiving, more malleable, it allows us to deal with the inevitable changes in life. Most, when we remark on something, uh, it's because something has changed. We notice it. There's a way of thinking about this whole enterprise of life as really um, accommodating to change. A very old friend in a nursing home 
who uh, now in an assisted living, who wrote to me when she moved in and said, um, I needed to move my neuropathy and my feet is bad enough so that I needed help. Um, she was in her 90s at the time, and she said, but I'd like you to come and teach uh, a mindfulness seminar here. She had been a student for a long time. She said, and there'd be several other people here who would be able to come and would, who would benefit from it. She said, I am having, we are having, she said, a hard time accommodating to our new situation. And I did go, and that's a whole different story. But the line that rang in my mind then and now is that line about I'm having a hard time accommodating to my new situation is pretty much the story of our lives, I think, for most of us. In between, we have respites, you know, but we're always accommodating to a new situation from separating from our parents or going to school or learning algebra or getting used to our sexuality or figuring out how to make a relationship and making a relationship or deciding on staying in a relationship or deciding on whether or not to make a family and then all of a sudden having a family and then all of a sudden having an empty nest and all of a sudden when you've really gotten that all part of your life together, having your body start to fall apart in different ways. We are always accommodating to a new situation. For many years I had a uh, poster in my, uh, I was actually up over my bathroom mirror and it said, uh, life is what's ha what happens to you while you make other plans. And I, it's, it was I, in uh, a kind of a funny way of saying you never know, really. You plan on things, but then other things happen. And some of them are desirable, and some of them are very fortunate. A friend of mine uh, was on her way to um, a, uh, a summer school in the south of France 25 years ago and sat down on a train next to the man, uh, a stranger, whom she married and is still married to. So on her way to the summer school, her life changed. So not all of the surprising changes are difficult, but there are a lot of surprising changes that happen that aren't what we want and are what we got or get. And the word malleable, which I mentioned earlier, is probably my favorite word for what the mind becomes when it has a certain amount of wisdom in it. It says, okay, it's not what I wanted, but it's what I've got. I read this remark about change today. I, this was another plan for how to start. We can't stop change from coming. You can only usher it in and work out the terms. If you're smart, and a little lucky, you can make it your friend. I like that a lot. I like it, first of all, because it's a quote. Do you think it's from Rumi? Or sounds like Rumi, Kabir, Hafiz. It's actually Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, so I like him sounding like Hafiz. But um, you can invite it in and... Um, make it your friend, or try to make it your friend. So how about, how does this, living in this particular lifestyle, with these particular instructions, allow the mind to move from an enmity status, challenging change, to the status of accommodating change? 
was very impressed with the language that uh, uh, I, last night and this morning was used to talk about how we might uh, think about every moment of mindfulness to relax, to observe, and to allow as the instruction for mindfulness. Relax, observe, and allow. Very much describes a mind that's comfortable. So, or could be. You know, I think of that so much when you give the mind an instruction, relax, it's as if somewhere you know that it could. Relax, observe, allow. I thought of it being another way to talk about the goal of practice, to have a life that could relax and observe and allow. One that, a mind that would be able to say, this isn't what I planned, and maybe it isn't what I wanted, but it's what's arrived. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, who's uh, been a teacher that I've really valued, I said once in a particular tone of voice so that it made a tremendous impression on me. He said, uh, sometimes my uh, mind gets stuck in something. I, a thought comes to my mind and maybe it brings up some anger or some ill will and I'm uncomfortable with it and I, I'm really stuck with it for a while and I struggle with it. And then he said, and then after a while I realize it's like this. And then my mind relaxes. Anger is like this. Anger has arisen, feels like this. The situation was such that my mind startled and, and it startled into anger. I think mostly I, I've been thinking about the different afflictive emotions that arise in the mind as we go about dealing with change is that we're startled. Uh, there's a lot of literature now about um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And sometimes I think that some of the knots and tangles and habits of our mind are the cumulative startle of our lives that, that have solidified somehow into habits and ways of responding to our life. Ajahn Amro says the instructions for these practice, this practice this of mindfulness this way. It's one of my favorite ways to hear instructions. He says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body, and then just stay that way. That's half the instruction. But I think it's great so far. First of all, it said natural peace and ease. That's a great piece of news. It isn't something that's a foreign to human beings. It's our birthright that the mind has a natural peace and ease. What's on top of that, blocking perhaps the experience of peace and ease, are the habits that create the tensions in the mind and cloud it so we can't be in contact with that natural peace and ease. But it isn't something that we have to get specially as a gift at the end of some long cultivation. Really, it's, a, it's our natural mind that becomes available to us when the confusions that block it are seen through. 
from the confusions that block it are eradicated or erased. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that are the natural peace of the mind and body, and then just stay that way. That's a great thing to say, too, just stay that way, as if you could. It's a lot of, it's a, it's a very big uh, statement of confidence. I mean, it gives the mind the idea, perhaps I could. You know, I, was, it was, it, it, I, I think I didn't think that to begin with. I think before I began my practice, I thought I was more or less uh, um, at the mercy of whatever passing mind straight state happened to arise in my mind, and I'd have to wait until it left. I would think to myself, oh, I wish I hadn't thought this thought, because now that I've thought it, I'm so upset about it. I had no sense at the time that I didn't have to be the victim of every passing mind state, that it could, in fact, pass and not take up residence. Actually, it took me a while to figure out that the mind state didn't take up residence, that my mind kept it there. And that really what I had to learn is to recognize it as a mind state and not something that was me or something that I owned, something that I could just notice and let go by. Relax, observe, allow. Sounds a little bit like um, instructions for um, uh, Aikido. Maybe it's not exactly the same, but you see what's happening, you understand it, and you get out of the way of it knocking you over. You allow it its course. As I was thinking about this and making notes today, I had the most odd kind of associations. I was thinking of that, about a mind state coming up or a thought coming up and the possibility of not... um, getting all um, upset by it and uh, being bewildered, so bewildered by it that the whole of the mind is kidnapped for a while. And I thought of the uh, doctrine that was part of American history. Uh, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, beware entangling alliances. So I thought of that. I could say, I could put a little sign in my mind, when you see something is coming along and say, beware entangling alliances, say, no, thank you. I'm not interested in entangling alliances. In the same thought, I thought of, of uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland and her experience going down the rabbit hole and meeting bottles uh, that say, drink me, and cakes that say, eat me, and uh, having all these wild and uh, extraordinary experiences from drinking what was in the bottle or eating the cake. And I think the alternative is to see a sign, a thought comes in the mind that says, think me. You say, no, actually, I won't do that. Thank you very much. I was on my way to think a kind thought for the person next to me on the Zafu next to me. So I'll just continue that way. Thank you very much. (laughs) Not in a way that is dismissive or in denial of what came up, but we get a choice of what partners to dance with. And here, come the, here comes a, a, you feel like dancing with me for a while thought? Say, no thanks, I'll sit this one out. <laughs> it's very hard, though, to do that. I mean, it's not so hard to say, but uh, I, think it, I think that the habits of our mind are such that it takes a while to get to see that it's a habit. 
somebody also in giving the instructions, whoever it was last night or this morning, said not to be in an adversarial relationship with what's going on is another way. It's the other way of saying allow. Allow is a positive way of saying it. And the other way is saying, you know, don't push it away. Don't fight with it. I have a friend who said that uh, the words, it's not fair, are the three words that cause the most trouble in the history of the world. Something happens, and the mind gets the idea that it's not fair. And really, it's not fair. I have several friends that are dealing with really serious and debilitating illnesses. And there's a way in which it's not fair. If life were fair, they're good and kind and wonderful people. And they get very disagreeable things. It's not fair. My friend Martha, who died um, of pancreas cancer, said about her experience, she said to me, you know, sometimes I think to myself when I think about um, the fact that I'm sick and I'm relatively young and other people aren't, I think to myself, why me? Why me? She said, when I think, why me? My mind suffers tremendously. She said, and then after a while, suddenly occurs to me, why not me? It's a thing. People get it. I got this. Everybody gets something eventually. I got this now. She said, you know, it's not that it makes me any happier about having it. And I'm certainly sad to be dying. But I'm not suffering as much. The suffering is the extra tension in the mind when it can't accommodate what's happening. It's actually my, my, my another way that uh, you might think about the first two of the Four Noble Truths. Life is always changing. And suffering is the imperative in the mind for things to be other than what they are now. Sometimes we'd like it to be other. We wish it were other. But this, it's different. I mean, it isn't about having all things be exactly the same. For a long time, I didn't. Un- I, I, I had, I had trouble understanding. Uh, I found Zen stories quite inscrutable. Um, the particularly the Zen story about the Zen master who's um, menaced by a warrior who brandishes his sword and says, I can run you through with the sword without batting an eye. And the Zen master says back, and I can be run through with a sword without batting an eye. And I didn't like the story for a long time because, actually because I thought I would never get to that place, number one, and I like to do practices that I think I can get to be good at. And the other reason, though, is that it looked to me uh, that the Zen master, uh, it was all the same with him whether he got run through or not, whether he lived or not lived. And it's not all the same with me. And I don't know if it'll ever be all the same with me, even at the end. I really like life. And I think at the end, unless I'm in terrible, terrible pain, uh, I'll be sort of sorry that I won't see what's happening tomorrow. But it took me a lot of years to realize that uh, in that particular story, 
there's no clue really about whether the Zen master doesn't care whether he lives or dies. Just that if he knows that this is what's happening, that he doesn't fight with it and make himself extra suffering. All you know is that he has the mind poised not to deal with what's inevitable in a way that makes it more difficult than it already is. So I think about uh, the importance of saying it's not about having a passive mind. It's about having a responsive mind. I don't want a passive mind. I want to be able to respond. But it's, uh, it's about not having such a reactive mind, not having such a startleable mind. It's about causing the mind, training the mind, really, cultivating a mind that can relax and observe and allow and not create extra tension and suffer. In some ways, it's not... Un, it, 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 I, I don't think it makes it any less worthy to say it's not unlike the uh, uh, understanding that 12-step participants say every day. I'd like to have the uh, strength to... Uh, change what I can change, and the ability to accept what I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now sometimes when I say things like that and it sounds so easy, and in my own mind I know that I have trouble, I just, I think everybody does, we get startled, it's not what we want. And it's not that easy to accept. I actually think it's a lifelong practice, not withstanding the fact that in the time of the Buddha, in preparation for, for talking tonight, I uh, reread part of this wonderful book, The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nanamoli. It's one of my all-time favorite books. And uh, I particularly like the accounts of the Buddha's early teaching and after following his own enlightenment and he went from here to there and he taught the five ascetics that he had previously uh, practiced with and then he taught this person and then he taught that person and then he taught large groups of pre people and fundamentally what he told them was uh, that things keep changing, that the nature of things has changed. As a matter of fact that there's nothing in anything that's, that's substantial at all. And actually, if anything exists at all, it is change that exists. Everything in flux and in change. Everything that arises passes away. It actually was, in the end, the penultimate statement of his life. Just before he uh, passed out of this life, he's said to have said, everything that arises passes away. And then the last sentence that he said, which I love, because it, re it, it reminds me that this is a lifelong practice. He said, strive on with diligence. I find that very inspiring. What I loved about this book, and the, I found one of the examples for you, is he taught this group, and he taught that group, and this person, and that person. And in this case, he's uh, teaching some people, and he's talking about, uh, in the fire sermon, uh, he's teaching monks, uh, and uh, he's talking about 
a careful observation that allows the mind to become dispassionate, dispassionate about what it hears and smells and tastes and feels, thinks. And the dispassionate, I think, has a sense to me about uh, the imperative is out of it, that it doesn't need to be different. That they can be they can be just observed, just the way they are, without imperative. That's what I think dispassionate means. And what I really wanted to tell you is the line that comes at the end of this, because um, it repeats itself like a refrain through the early <laughs> teachings, and I find it very uh, uplifting. It says, while he was delivering this discourse. Thousands of the bhikkhus assembled because their hearts were not clinging, were liberated from taints. That means in them never again arose greed, hatred, and delusion. They didn't get confused. They didn't have tension in their mind. Wisdom installed itself in an unshakable way. They were enlightened. Their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. So I love that because it reminds me of the possibility of liberation. I also love it because I love thinking that it happened with them just from listening, from listening to a, a truth in such a way that it instilled itself into their minds. And likely they had practiced settling down, so they really heard that truth in a, in a, in a firm and extraordinary way. The truths about things changing all the time, the truths about tension being the suffering being the extra tension when we struggle, and the truth about causality. Things happen because other things happen, and everything that happens has sequelae. It's really the, the way, way of talking about karma as being the result of actions proximal and distal. So things happen and we don't know why. Like my friend Martha saying, why me? Why not me? You know, that uh, why for my friend that got on that train and didn't go to her study course and married somebody that 25 years later she has three children and a contented life with, why that train? If she'd gone on the next train, she would have missed that person. She would have had a whole other life. Do you remember seeing a movie called Sliding Doors. You remember that? That's a movie that begins with someone running, getting up in their apartment, getting ready to go out, running down the stairs, running outside, going down into a subway, and missing the train because the doors close and the train leaves. And then it continues on. And then the movie, as it was, stops and goes back. And goes back to running down the steps in the subway and the doors don't close in time and she gets in and then a whole different life unfolds from that. When you think about every train that you got on and off in your life, every journey that you've taken here or there, every right or left turn, sometimes we look back on our lives, I look back on mine, and I think, how did I get here? 
And then I think, well, it's because I did this and this and this and this and this, and that's how I got here. But I wouldn't have done those things unless everything else around them had happened. And I wouldn't have done anything, actually, if my parents hadn't met each other at some point and had a child. And they wouldn't have met each other. They wouldn't have done that unless they'd liked each other, so that's a piece of my karma. And they wouldn't have even been unless their parents had liked each other. And their parents might not have met each other had not the uh, economic climate in Europe so changed that uh, the living conditions for uh, people in that culture in Eastern Europe really was so difficult that they had to emigrate to America to find a new life. So really, when I think about my being here, I'm, I, I have no sense that it depends on a decision that I made at any point that I was going to be here doing this. But everything that ever happened, because at any time had any of those things not happened, this wouldn't be happening now. It's so important for me to realize that because sometimes when I'm annoyed at my life for something that's happening in it, I realize that if I didn't have that in my life, I'd have to give up my whole life because my whole life has that in it. And you can't just take that one little piece out of it. I'm annoyed with this or that or the other. And I say, wait a minute, this or that or the other is a piece of my whole life. If my whole life is what I want, the people in it that are dear to me, then I have to take it with everything in it. It would be different otherwise. I don't know if it wouldn't be better or more exciting or more interesting or more fulfilling, but it would be different. This is the life I have. And it's the only life I could have given all of the karmic factors that went into putting it together. I think when I remember in any moment, this is the only way this moment can be, then I stop fighting with it. I look at the world, and I remember last night when Guy began to talk, and he made that really uh, appropriate and daunting and uh, list of the difficulties in the world that are serious. I think to myself, what really makes uh, me hopeful that change could happen is that all those problems in the world didn't happen accidentally. They happened because of things that people did, which makes me very hopeful because I have the feeling that there's some of the difficulties maybe not all of them at this point because we have difficulties with the planet itself, but certainly if people were different, the world could be different. Suppose we all stopped, looked around. Suppose the whole world at one time stopped, relaxed, observed, took a little time to look around and see the world is full of people just like me, who just like me would like to have a life that was peaceful and safe, not frightening. They'd like to be well-fed. They'd like to have a place that they could live comfortably. They're not different from me. Maybe we could live together. We could have a different world. So I wanted to talk about the ways that being here specifically in this venue mitigate in the direction of having wisdom arise. I love it that in the, in the stories of the Buddha, <laughs> wisdom arose just because people listened to him uh, and 
presumably in those people were so firmly installed that they were liberated from tanks forever. And here we are practicing and practicing again and coming back again and all of us with quite impressive vita of previous retreats. But we come back, I think, because we keep feeling better in them and we have the sense that something's happening, that the habits are being changed, the knots in the mind are becoming untied a little bit. So when people say to me, what's the practice that you do? I think the practice is cultivating a mind that's relaxed and allowing, open and alert, really able to be cognizant of what's fully happening moment to moment, and kindly disposed. One of the mantras that I have as a personal practice mantra these days, been using it for a couple of years, I like it a lot, So I say to myself when I sit down, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. At the end, maybe we'll sit that way for a minute. You can try it, because my body feels a little different when I say one line and say the next line. But I think it's actually a summary of mindfulness and loving-kindness practice. A kindly, warmly disposed attention that doesn't leave anything out, that looks carefully at things. I think we're able here to look carefully and to be um, in a relaxed enough way to look carefully and with a kind disposition. There's a line actually in the loving-kindness sermon that says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be well. May all beings be very well. I think what we're practicing here is conditioning a mind that feels safe and glad. And I think they're both aspects of wisdom. So if we had to put it in one word, we'd say we're practicing being wise. And everything about being here tends in that direction. If this were a controlled experiment, it would be hard to have a, uh, uh, if this were a scientific experiment, it would be hard to have a control because in addition to sitting here in this kind of sitting practice with attention brought to a neutral object, an anchor of attention, we also have the practice of living in community, of living in a community that's taken precepts. So living in a safe community, in buildings that don't have locks on the doors, living in a com- that's that already calms the mind. There aren't so many places in the world where you can live absolutely knowing that you're safe. Where at, 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 at predictably, <laughs> ample and delicious and nutritious meals will appear. It's a little bit like a magic Garden of Eden setting when you think about it, patrolled by uh, peaceful deer. Uh, it's a very it's a very Eden kind of a setting. Nobody annoys you by talking to you or bothering you or <laughs> needing anything from you or even looking at you as far as you can tell. Everybody's tremendously kind about 
holding doors and not showering at the wrong times. It's a kind community. And who knows whether that isn't the principal ingredient of the mind settling down and feeling relaxed and saying, oh, I really get it. It's all passing. There's only this moment. I make things worse when I struggle with them. It couldn't be different from now. Nothing could be different from now. And I couldn't be better than I am. I fall asleep a lot. Well, that's my way. I tend to uh, get lost in the uh, planning. Well, that's my curious mind. It's always doing that. I can try not to do it, but not giving ourselves a bad time about anything. Sometimes in interviews, people say, I was giving myself a bad time about, and I know that before they, when they tell me whatever it is they're going to tell me about, that whatever it is, you shouldn't be giving yourself a bad time about it because it couldn't be different. It's what's happening now. And there's a way in which the mind, when it realizes it couldn't be other, it doesn't, it's, it's very tolerant, it's very forgiving. Doesn't mean we don't try to do something else. It just means we don't give ourselves a bad time. It's demoralizing to give yourself a bad time. So we, we have a safe community, you're not answering emails, you're not reading emails, very stressful to read emails. I think it's one of the big stresses of modern life because every one of them, they're one after another. You forgot to do this. Please send that. This bad news happened to so-and-so. Here's a piece of good news. Wow, that's great. But wait a minute, here's another bad news. And here's something else that you didn't do on time. And wait a minute. And look at this. Please fill in this petition. Send money. It's urgent. Do it today. There's a million ways that you can get really frazzled on the email. And I do, I do. Uh, I, have, I have email rules uh, for myself, many of which I learned from my colleague Donald Rothberg. I do it slower and I do it less and I try beginning my answers in my emails with a blessing. <laughs> because if I start by saying, I hope this day, uh, I hope this day greets you in a pleasant way, uh, whatever I'm going to say, I'm going to say nicer at that point so, and more thoughtfully. So here you don't have emails and you don't have cell phones and you're not reading and you're not writing and you're not talking. You're eating the good food. And sometimes I say to people on the first night of a retreat, if you never did any of the meditation, quote-unquote, instructions at the end of the week, you'd probably or the month for sure, you'd probably feel much clearer of mind and much more relaxed and I think one of the things that we're doing is practicing feeling relaxed and alert. Not a relaxed and sleepy, which you might be on a vacation or a holiday, uh, or, um, but really relaxed and alert. But in addition to it, we do these particular practices of bringing the attention to this moment and this moment and this moment. So I want to talk particularly about that for just the rest of the time that I have. In the uh, Sermon on the Foundations of Mindfulness, which really is how mindfulness practice, the, the way the instructions for mindfulness practice, it's the recipe for mindfulness practice. Uh, it's, a, it's a sermon that the Buddha teach, te taught. The sermon that the Buddha taught And it has a tremendously inspiring beginning. It says, 
bhikkhus, monks, this is the direct path for the purification of being, for surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So when you think about that, the end of grief and lamentation, that's a great thing to think about. And then he goes on to talk about paying attention in four particular domains of experience. It's really wonderful to think about all you need is the faculty of attention. When I teach this to people, uh, apart from uh, 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 a bit of setting, apart from people knowing the word mindfulness, I often substitute the words paying attention for mindfulness. Actually, mindfulness is a, is a translation of a Pali term by British translators um, originally. And in Britain, people say, mind the gap, when they mean be careful, when, pay attention when you step off the, the train, or uh, mind the step so you don't trip. Mind means pay attention to. So it's really paying attention meditation. We should call it paying attention meditation, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the same cachet. Somehow it doesn't have the same ring. Pay attention to the body and the breath in the body. Pay attention to the tone of feeling that arises moment to moment. Every moment arises with a, a valence of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Pay attention to uh, mind. That's the third foundation. And pay attention to mind objects. That's the fourth foundation. Pay attention to the, the truths of, that become clear the really the how what are the what are the um, energies that cloud the mind? That's the first of the mind objects that are listed. And there's traditionally five of them, and we'll talk about them later on this week, probably. What are the what are the uh, what are the energies that cloud the mind? What are the truths about life and the cause of suffering, and the possibility of the end of suffering? The third noble truth is that peace is possible. That's a tremendously exciting thing. And the fourth noble truth is the path to that end. And what we're practicing here are the three parts of the path that are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. We are, this whole thing is wise effort. We are continually bringing ourselves back to our intention to relax, and clarify and soften the mind in any of the things that we're doing here. We are continually really practicing mindfulness or trying to by observing and noting moment to moment what's happening outside, what's our response inside. And we are cultivating concentration all the time. We're cultivating concentration both by choosing an anchor, choosing a particular repetitive experience to bring our attention to or back to because that builds concentration. And it's also true that continual sequential moments of mindfulness build concentration. And concentration itself has the effect of composing the mind, really relaxing it is a good word.
So it's not so startleable. And maybe I'll read you a piece of the beginning of this. It's just nice to hear it in its own text. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating the body as a body, having gone someplace? I'm going to try and I'm going to do a free translation here. It says, having gone to the forest or a root or a tr of a tree or an empty hut. So this is our forest and this is our empty hut. Sits down, folds his legs, her legs, or sits on a chair with body erect. It doesn't say that here. I made that up. <laughs> and establishes mindfulness in front of her. doesn't say that either, but I put that in. The her. Ever mindful, she breathes in. Mindful, she breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands. I breathe in long. Breathing out long, she understands. I breathe out long. We'll probably talk tomorrow morning more about using uh, mental notes, short sentences, words, to say what's happening. The reason is not to make a giant catalog of what happens, but really to see that things change. Now this, and now this, and now this. And one of the ways of really noticing change is by really naming what's happening. And you see what's happening, and now it's this, and now it's this, and now it's this. I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the bodily formation. I breathe out that way, too. It's an important, uh, it's an important concept for me to, to suggest that I breathe in perhaps a longer breath if I feel that that's what I need in order to calm the mind and breathe it out. For the most part, we just sit here and allow the breath to arrive and go out and arrive and go out. But I think to myself, sometimes I need a longer breath just to really feel it and let it go out, and also to feel more relaxed. Because we're a participant in this. We're not just really waiting to have um, a, a tranquil and alert mind arise, but we're actively involved in cultivating it, skillful means. And then after each of these cultivations, after the, each of these instructions for what the meditator might do, talks about the insight that arises from doing it, and the insight that everything, this breath, this bodily sensation, has the nature of arising and passing away. And then it ends by saying, the meditator abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. It seems so important to me that abides independent is the beginning of the establishing of a mind that really can meet experiences without entangling alliances, really accommodating them and allowing them and letting them go. We'll talk a lot more this week about the second foundation of mindfulness. It's called mind, it's Vedana is the Pali word for feelings. 
And when we think in English, we think of feelings uh, in a much more elaborate way. I, he hurt my feelings, or I had so many different kinds of feelings about that. We really often talking about emotional responses. This Vedana really means there are three uh, uh, valences to experiences as they arise. Some of them are neutral and they don't startle the mind very much. Often the, we don't notice them actually, and that's something else. But often they're unpleasant and they startle the mind that moves a little bit away from them because they're, they're startlingly unpleasant. And sometimes they're pleasant. And then the mind starts moving nearer to them and wanting a little more of them. That's not anything wrong with anybody's mind. It's not like having a naughty mind because it wants to get finished with unpleasantness and have more of pleasant. Everybody's mind would rather have that. But it's attentiveness to the impulse to move back away or the impulse to grab onto an experience. And abides independent means attentive to that impulse and not doing it. Here I am. This experience comes and goes and comes and goes. And I don't really need to do anything more with it than watch it coming and going and understand deeply that everything changes and that grasping or pushing away is really like fighting with ghosts because there's nothing to grab anyway. And it's just fighting in the mind that is suffering. Another very uh, valuable uh, aspect of paying attention to it's pleasant and it's unpleasant and it's neutral is it keeps changing. And it's another facet of... Uh, it's another opportunity to notice the truth of everything is changing all the time. Now it's this, now it's this. third domain of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind. And this is the one that I want to read to you particularly because tomorrow afternoon we'll begin with Brahma Vihara practice in the afternoon. And this really relates to it quite neatly, I think. Sally mentioned it this morning when she said, we really needn't always keep our attention in just a bodily sensation or the breath or the sensations of the body as it walks or the tastes of the food as we eat. But the, the state of the mind as it experiences whatever it is that it's doing. So um, mind filled with uh, pleasure or mind filled with ease or mind that's alert or mind filled with sleepiness or quoting the Buddha in his sermon mind affected by lust, mind unaffected by lust. My, he, the meditator understands mind affected by hate and mind unaffected by hate. Understands uh, contracted mind as contracted mind, distracted mind as distracted mind, exalted mind as exalted mind, unexalted mind as unexalted mind. I love to read those through because it's clear to me that what it means is those are all the things that happen. And it's not about having something and not having something else. It's about th recognizing that things arise and that with the same abiding that we abide with, with the changing sensations of the body or the changing experiences of pleasant and unpleasant, 
We can be with difficult experiences in the mind and unpleasant mind states and pleasant mind states. Particularly, he understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind, liberated mind as liberated mind, and unliberated as unliberated. That, I think, for me, seems very closely linked with recognizing the mind in the state of goodwill that accompanies concentration. The mind that... uh, the mind that's really relaxed and focused is untroubled by uh, afflictive emotions. And in that moment, because we're human beings, is by its own nature kindly disposed. I think that's just, I think I find that to be true. I think it's a given in most human beings with good neurology. That's just the way it works. We are uh, at, just by nature most of us, friendly, companionable. We're interested in other people. We're herd animals. We hang out with, we tend to group together. I think by nature, when our minds are not clouded by tension and the self-preoccupation that comes from it, we're naturally compassionate. We, We feel badly when things happen to other people that are uncomfortable, even if we don't know the people. Even if we're not there, we see it on a movie uh, or on the TV or we read about it in the newspaper. And we're naturally appreciative when our minds are relaxed. See somebody do something spectacular. Somebody uh, clears 15 feet in a high jump or... uh, a 12-year-old who plays the cello extraordinarily well, or uh, someone who sings very well, or someone who's tremendously, uh, in some way, done something skillful. We appreciate, look what human beings can do. And even enjoy the pleasure that other people have. One of the best things that I read in my uh, tremendous amount of reading and watching that I did in and around the election and the inauguration is I read an article in the New York Times about um, the men in uh, in a, uh, a maximum security prison in Louisiana who none of them are ever going to get out of that prison. They're all in there for capital crimes, they're serving life sentences, two life sentences consecutively, if you can imagine. And they were given a furlough. They have a, it's a working farm. They, they, they're generally out farming these large expanses of territory that the prison is in the middle of. And the warden in this prison gave them the day off to watch the inauguration. And uh, the uh, the interviewer, uh, who, who, the person who wrote the story, had interviewed several of the men there, and said they enjoyed so much uh, this experience, even that they were never going to be out themselves in the world again, and uh, they were so uh, lifted up. One particular man said, "You know, I'm so inspired 
I am going to rededicate myself to the work I do in the hospice here in the prison. He's a person who's done 40 years in prison already, working now in the hospice with other inmates who are dying. He said, I'm so inspired with, with, uh, with how important it is to just work as hard as you can to do as much good as you can. So I'm going to work even harder as my, at my work in the, in the hospice. And I thought that was a tremendous uh, example of murita, of uh, appreciation that lifts you up from some other person's success, even when your situation is manifestly difficult. So one of the things I think is that wisdom reflects itself in goodwill is when the mind is clear about how things are, that this is a difficult life, and we make it more difficult when we struggle, and that thoughtful, uh, kind response is the most um, successful refuge. That wisdom reflects itself in goodwill and compassion and appreciation. And the practice of goodwill and uh, consolation and appreciation supports wisdom. And so we here will do both practices. We'll continue with the mindfulness instructions, noting and seeing and trying to directly see through to the truth of experience. And we'll um, augment that with the practice of cultivating sustained goodwill. It does two things. It deepens concentration, and it also predisposes the mind to kindly meeting its experience. I found that as, as the years went by in my own practice, the more I understood how it worked, the more zealous I was about practice. So I think we should sit for a minute, and I'll invite you to uh, experiment with how your body and mind feels. If you <laughs> say to yourself, perhaps on the in-breath and the out-breath, perhaps on every other breath, however you like, may I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend.
Thank you very much. We have um, a half hour now until um, we sit again. So I really want to uh, invite and encourage you to come to the chanting, to the next sitting, because we'll be chanting at the end of it. It'll probably be a little shorter the whole of the evening because it's 